0: Hi, it's Wednesday. So, trying to look for a yard site this week. A little bit crazy because I have shabbos I've shabbos. I got a little worry about, but we'll try to keep to the schedule. And I looked online, and the one that caught my attention this week is person I'm sure you never heard of, and that's one of the big uh, rabbis in Italy at the time of Zarya Figo. I spoke about a few weeks ago. It's called Marshik, the Shmuel Yehuda Katzin I know that's not a household name, but it was once. It was once. Uh, this is somebody who lived in the 1500s in what they call the Renaissance period in Italian Jewry. Again, I spoke about it a little while ago. And uh, it's a special slice of life in Jewish history of unusual variety. Uh Ellenbogen, I know it sounds like a funny name is nothing but the name of a small town in Germany, a village. I mean, it's a cat's el- elbow. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we have all kinds of crazy names in English also, right? So, uh, any Jew that comes from that place used to call themselves a cat's in Ellenbogen. It so happened that there was a family of distinguished Talmidichachamem that came out of there, and especially when they moved to Italy and places like that, then it became like an aristocratic Jewish name. And so that's one of the Chasheva uh, names of mishpachas of old. And the person we're talking about lived in there, there, like something like 1520, 15, 1597, something along those lines, all the way right through um, the 1500s, as I said before in Italy, I'll do you one better. Lived all of his life in one little area of Italy, again, which I mentioned some time ago, and I'll probably return again, and that's Venice. And I'm referring to the territory of the Republic of Venice which is something that no longer exists, because Venice is today nothing but a city in Italy. But once upon a time, for many centuries, there was a separate independent country called the Republic of Venice, and they're famous, as you know, for the Venice and the canals, and consequently, don't be surprised if they had a very good navy of a certain type once upon a time, and they even had a very hush of an army, although the army was mostly uh, mercenaries, so it was one city that was able to fight off countries and empires. If you Google it, you look it up, you'll see it's quite a remarkable story. The city of Venice, therefore the Republic of Venice, was an oligarchy and aristocratical republic, as they call it, which means they didn't have a king, but rather about a, 100 families or whatever ran the whole operation. So it's a, not a democracy, but a republic. And uh, was very interesting, the uh, Barbanel, uh, when he talks about what's the best form of government, he said, well, the republic, like Venice. Because the Barbenel for a while after he was kicked out of Spain, worked for a while for the State Department of Venice uh, as a diplomat. Now, there were Jews in Venice, but again, I'm speaking about the whole territory of the Republic of Venice. So that means the city, plus a big chunk of land all around it. They used to call it the terra firma, the, uh, not the land on the sea, which is the city is on, on the water, as we all know. But beyond that is regular land. And the Republic of Venice, way back in the 1300s, I mean, 12, 1300s, fought and conquered whole cities and areas uh, f- quite far away from the city and built up a little medina. And it was known for being well-run and well-administered. The Venetians, once they took over an area, organized an efficient government system, and again, I'm repeating myself, but uh, that was a place of law and order. And uh, where there really were honest cops, and there really were honest judges, relatively honest, I mean, it's Italy after all, but relatively honest um, uh, law court systems. And that's as good as you're going to get it. And if you're Jewish, that's a place that you would like to live if you're able to, because Jews need need above all uh, law and order, if you think about it. Now, Venice happens to be a place, again, I repeat for the fourth time, I'm speaking about that whole area of Italy, the Republic of Venice. There happens to be a territory to which Jews moved from Germany when they are running away from persecutions in Germany in the late Middle Ages. Once upon a time, Germany was a big center of Jewry. I think we all know that the Ashkenaz, Jews, Ashkenaz mainly means Germany. And then, in the latter part of the Middle Ages, the anti-Semitism, for various reasons, intensified... And in one terri- one territory of Germany after another, one state of Germany after another, uh, there were anti jewish measures, either killings, pogroms, and things like that, or uh, other sorts of persecutions and uh, or stom they just expelled them for one reason or another and without going into all the details, it was really rough. so Jews often were kicked out and had nowhere to go well, one place you might want to go is the next country south of Germany. And when I say Germany, I'm talking about the Holy Roman Empire, so Austria would be part of Germany in those days. And that's Italy. So if you know your map, and if you're not, you can Google it, you'll see that if you go Germany and Switzerland and Austria, south of that is, is, is Italy, north of Italy, or the territory of Venice, primarily. Not only. So I don't want to bore you, but that means that the first Jews in northern Italy for a long, long time were Ashkenazic Jews, Yiddish-speaking. So Venetian Jewry for a long, long time, was Ashkenaz. And again, they spoke Yiddish. So it's funny, we don't think of Venice, especially the fabled city of Venice, as being a place with a bunch of Yiddish-speaking Jews, but it was for a long time. And these Jews were pretty from. Or let's put it this way, they included some from elements. And they brought the Ashkenazic traditions with them to Italy. And I'm not talking about the Italian Jews, I'm talking about the German Jews who settled in northern Italy, and one of the things they brought with them was a strong tradition of Torah study. And so, by the time this reaches its full development, in Padua, which is a city in the Republic of Venice, it's a a city on its own, became the site of a yeshiva, and that yeshiva lasted for a couple of hundred years. And so here you are in the middle of Italy, everybody in the street is talking Italian, but in the four walls of the yeshiva, it's like Torah Dasar near Israel 67 years ago. Everything's run in Yiddish. And that's how the Jews like to do it. Now, they picked up Italian because you have to talk to your customers and, you know, do business. But only that way. They uh, really remained for a long time a Yiddish-speaking society. And they kept all the records, everything, in in either in Yiddish or in in, um, Hebrew. And this is the world of our hero today. Because the main family that was associated with this yeshiva that was founded in Padua was uh, Mintz. The famous Rebuda Mintz, Marie Mintz, in the uh, 1400s. And he set up a yeshiva yeshiva, you know, like a mini Lakewood, let's put it that way. And uh, they took learning very seriously. And they brought the German style from the late Middle Ages, the kind of alumnus that was popular once upon a time, but is no longer popular today, in which you have the pill-pull of old. And they had uh, two a day, uh, like they used to have. We have a whole description of this from eyewitnesses. And uh, they had a, you know, a yeshiva-based medrash, And in general, Italy is just an interesting place in the history of yeshivas, because in Italy, the word yeshiva means the collective group of everybody in town who knows how to learn. They all get together and they argue and scream a lot in learning, and they also discuss halachic questions and. The Shiva Venice, the Shiva Padua means everybody in town knows they learn gets together at certain times and they discuss some halachic issue and maybe they issue a ruling or something like that. And of course they had a basin and an autonomous coercive community like it had all over the diaspora. And uh, Judaism of a certain type flourished for a long time, even though the Venetian government did not like Jews. But the Jews wanted to live there if they were able to. There were other advantages to living in the territory of Venice I won't go into right now. And as a result, a very strong guide developed in this place that nobody would ever imagine. Uh, Padua is also the site of one of the great universities, and the only university that allowed allow Jews for a long time, or one of the only universities that would allow Jews to attend. So, if you're a boy from Italy, or even from around surrounding areas, from Austria, from uh, Germany, even a place like that, one of the options you might want to go to, if you're interested in, in Jewish scholarship and, and, and going to yeshiva, and you know, Talmud Torah, <laughs> would be not just the, the t- typical places you understand the Ashkenaz or Poland. You might want to go to Northern Italy. And you might want to go to the yeshiva in uh, Padua. And when Rebuna Mince, Mary Mince, died, he left it to his uh, son-in-law, I guess. First his son, and then The son-in-law was Captain Ellenbogen, who, a mayor of Captain Ellenbogen, who... They call Maram Padua, which simply means mayor who is Shiva and the chief rabbi in Padua. And so Padua became a real place for intensive Judaism. It's funny to imagine, you know, the, the scenes of a Renaissance Italian city with all the stuff going on outside. And inside, this building or that building is not only a Jewish community, but they're screaming and carrying on because the Ashkenazic learning of of yesteryear involved a lot of shouting on purpose. And the Russian Shiite was asking questions of people trying to hock him up. And they love to do this sort of thing. You're supposed to sweat, as they say, when you learn. And they're right in the middle, as I say, of all the Italian business. Now, the Maharam Padua was really at the top of his form. In the first half of the 1500s, he was among the very big post and rabbis and that sort of thing in Italy. And not only in Italy. It so happens that you know how it works in the Shi world. This rabbinical family is related to that one. This Rashiva marries that one's a cousin and all that business. So they were related, like, to the Ramal, for example, as a cousin of his. And uh, it's famous. They had a lot of goings back and forth between them. And we have the Shalas and Shubhas of the Maram Padua. And they're extremely interesting because he gets questions from real life. And this is Italy in which life is presented in every sort of way. It's, it's close to you get to modernity 500 years ago with all the problems associated with it. And he's trying to negotiate his way around it, as all posts can uh, try to do, trying to find halachic solutions. Now, the Maram Pato had several children. One of them was Shmuel Yehuda. And basically, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, you know, you only have so many children. They can't all be the Russian but They can't all take the job over. So you have to t- kind of like parcel them out. And so what do you do if he has several sons? One, only one can be the head of the yeshiva. So what are the other ones supposed to do? See, he had this situation. And what he did was he sent his son, Shmuel Yehuda, at a fairly young age. I mean, I don't know, his 20s, whatever. Uh, This is a young man who married the right girl, and he himself is independently wealthy because the Casanoan family not only was in learning, but they had friends who were merchants and invested their money for them and that sort of thing. And the father said, I guess I'm sending you to Venice. And so he spent like 50, 60 years in Venice, first as a learner, and then as a dying and then as the head of the basin, others like the chief... Rabbi, at least of the Ashkenazim. And so here somebody spends most of his adult life trying to bring Yiddishkeit to Venice. The city of Venice, that's what I'm talking about now, really didn't want Jews there. And historically, they would not permit any Jew to reside in the city. But in the early 1500s, once upon a time, there was a certain war, as the only war in 500 years in which Venice was invaded. Usually their diplomacy was good enough to avoid that. And the city itself was under attack. And a bunch of Jews like a bunch of non-Jews, ran away to the city of Venice itself for try to get like shelter. And uh, once they were here, the Jews didn't want to leave. And so the government of Venice, the Senate, debated what to do back and forth. And by the time it's over, they said, you can live here but in a certain area called the ghetto, which is near the armory factory. That's where ghettos come from. And so that became the first ghetto. And it's unusual because it's not like the Jews have been living there and then they forced them into a bad neighborhood this was the condition of the Jews being allowed to move there. And the Jews took it because, I'll take whatever you give me. Uh, the Jews wanted to live in Venice, first of all, for security. And second of all, Venice is a big seaport. Remember Shylock? And so, back and forth, all the ships are coming, and hopefully you can do business. The government of Venice was extremely anti-Semitic and passed all kinds of that The Jews should only engage in this trade and not in that trade. And it wasn't easy to uh, get around the rules. But in spite of everything I just said, the Jews wanted to live in Venice. And so here... He sends his son, the Rosh and Padua sends his son to be in Venice, and the son of Shmuel Yehuda, Mar they call him, opens the yeshiva <laughs> in Venice. This, baby, this is like having a uh, lakewood inside of uh, Vegas. That's exactly what it was. Because Venice is not only a city on the water, Venice was the party capital of the pre modern world. And when I say party, I mean every bad thing associated with parties. That's where they had the carnivals, that's where they had all the carryings on. And the mistresses and the playboys and this and that and the other. Oh my goodness, Venice is like notorious. You know what I'm saying? If you want to sin, Venice is the place to, for you. And they all the sinners headed over there. Great. And now that you're it's a yeshiva, <laughs> how are you going to keep the boys in the building? You know what I'm saying? And, and, if, and forget the boys in the building. Maybe you can hold on to them. How are you going to keep the other young people in the community from straying off and wandering outside the ghetto and carrying God with others? And who knows what it leads to? I mean, we do know what it leads to. And so... Being a rabbi in Venice and being a Rosh shiva in Venice and trying to have Kedusha Tahira as Shemuel Yehudah tried to do, Kedusha Tahira in the middle of all that stuff was quite a challenge indeed. You can only imagine the kind of questions and problems he had to deal with all the time. And the guy did it, like for 50 years and what's interesting is that his students growing up in such a, what shall I say, secular environment, such a powerful drawing environment, uh, his students, the one we know of, became big comedy in but usually uh, knowledgeable of Italian culture, of European culture. Isn't that interesting? Now, Padua has a university. Venice does not have a university. But Venice had what they call colleges, academies, in which you could learn specialized sorts of things. Words, it has its own system of secular studies. And the Jewish students in this yeshiva, many of them, we didn't know exactly how. Maybe they was allowed. Maybe it was don't ask, don't tell. Obviously, picked up a lot of this kind of secular knowledge, but they try to combine it with being frum. So this is what they mean sometimes when they speak of an Italian Haskalah, an Italian Haskalah, which is very different than the Haskalah you're usually thinking of, because the Haskalah many people are thinking of is from Eastern Europe, in which people already were not frum and they're breaking away from Yiddishkeit and all the rest of it. Here you have an attempt. I know it sounds funny to have like a frum Haskalah, which means. Learning is very important. Shemir Smith is very important. But you also want to know Latin and Greek and Italian, and you want to be able to deliver a speech. See, in this society, the Jews who are in Venice, uh, if you want to get their respect, you have to be as good as the Goyim. You have to be as good as the preachers and the great orators. The churches uh, were going through a golden era at that time and had great uh, speakers. And so the Jews were also demanding, so we want to hear good speakers, not just the dvartor and the Valtorion but something that's very uh, catchy and highfalutin and all the rest of it. And uh, therefore, it's really interesting that here's the yeshiva in which they stress halacha, they stress gemara Shitosis, they stress lambdas and pilpal and all that sort of thing, no question about it. But they also do public speaking and uh, homiletics and, as I say, acquaintance with the basic philosophical issues out there so you're able to answer, like we would say today, Damasha atosha vabakurus. And therefore, you have to have a classical education in one degree or another. Classical education means, you know, the Greek and the Latin. You read the classics. And uh, Venice particularly becomes interesting in the 1500s and 1600s because they have like a small galaxy of Talmud who Chachamim who uh, are quite well educated in the secular sense. And one of the areas that they specialize in is uh, public speaking and, and, and sermons. I mentioned Figo the other day, or a month ago, whatever, He was on the firmer side. But you have many people that you definitely see, they're trying to um, impress the audience by showing off what they know, not only in Torah and Gemara and all that, but also in terms of science, history, uh, philosophy, Greek and Latin, uh, be able to quote from the right authors and that sort of business. And this is something you don't usually find in Eastern Europe, you understand? You don't find this in some drush in Poland or someplace like that. Uh, there it's very culturally insular. Now, I want to be very clear about this. The from world is not really, really, really interested at the end of the day in a rabbi who's uh, really bright, very broad-minded. But they do crave the illusion of it. <laughs> they want somebody who comes across like he could be broad-minded. It looks like he's well-read and all that. But really, he's from. That's you had in Venice. Uh, I could name name after name, but it wouldn't mean anything to you because you don't know who these people were. And most of them were the Talmudim of Reb Shmuel Yehudeketz and And they acknowledged themselves that way. And he, therefore, he became like, uh, what should I say, the guttle of this particular part of the world. And Venice had an empire, not only the territory in Italy that I just described to you before, but over the years, Venice acquired a lot of territory along the way. I'll just give you an idea the island of Crete, the island of Cyprus, these ones, they're far away from Italy. They used to be owned by Venice. Uh, part of Greece, a fair, a big part of Greece once upon a time, was ruled by Venice. What we call the Dalmatian coast, which is the coastline in the Adriatic opposite uh, Italy, was once controlled by Venice. And therefore, there's such a thing called Venetian Jewry. And if you know your halachic history, there's a certain type of gedolim that they're not Ashkenaz exactly, they're not Sephard, and they're not Italian, they're Venetian. You know, it's a certain sug, and it's a combination of all three, but they have their own misoro, and their own and And their own way of learning, right off the top of my head, Rav Pardo is the name that uh, uh, jumps to mind. But there was a whole host of, maybe you've heard of him, but many others. And Shmuel Yehuda Katsumogam might be considered like the founder of the city of Venice as a Mokum Torah. So again, it's really strange. Here you have a place where everybody's going around in masks during the ball time and the carnival, and uh, the men and the women are running off and this and that and the other. And a few blocks away in in the ghetto, when I was there, so it's really just a few blocks away... You know somebody who's giving she'er, you know, in the evening and in the morning, and uh, you know, passing shilas and uh, trying to maintain a strong yiddish guy, and has moderate, as we would say today, a moderate success. You have some. Uh, now, what's really interesting, and this this explains something that's very unusual about Shmuel Yudik He published one sefer. What is that sefer? And you can get it. It's called Shneimot or Drushes, the Twelve Drushes. Uh, 12 speeches that he gave, not speeches, Tom and the Velterine, but they're modeled on the famous example of the 12 drushes of the Ron back in the 1300s in Spain. The Ron, I'm sure you all know, is in the back of the Gemara of Nissa McGirona, and he's a Rishan Rishan, he's a Gemara, Gemara guy, no question about it. Uh, but he also wore another hat, and he was a rabbi of a community, I think, I think he was in Saragossa, I believe. And uh, in, in 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 Spain, in Aragon, in the 1300s, Iran. And he gave, on certain occasions, these, uh, like we would say today, lectures, in which you're trying to explain philosophically, but in a very from mode, philosophically, um, discrete ideas, abstract ideas from the Torah, usually from the Parsha of the Week, but it could be from other things as well, I'll just give you one example off the top of my head since I'm just sitting here going by memory. The Rosh the is the one who asks, how come Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't speak to save his life? He said, "Kikvad peh onochi. You know, at the burning bush, Moshe said, don't get me the job, get somebody else because uh, I can't speak. The story is he burned his mouth with coals. Isn't that right? That's what you all learned. Uh, I know there are other ways of translating kvad peh, but that's the usual way that they understand it. So he was a terrible speaker. That's why Aaron had to be his speaker. That's the story in the Khamish. Why? Why didn't God get somebody with a good uh, speaking ability, a public speaker, a polished guy? You know why not? And uh, so this is the drushes are on. It says uh, long ago he says because he didn't wanted to think that the reason the Jews accepted the Torah was because the persuasive demagoguery of the speaker. Uh, they say yo, yeah, Moshe Rabbeinu was like a New York Jewish salesman. He could sell you anything. He could sell ice to the Eskimos, you know. So he saw tie to the to, to the Bedouin. So sure, he sold the Torah to the Jews. Uh, wrong. Uh, Moshe actually couldn't, save a, couldn't speak to save his life. If he was able to get the Torah to the Jewish people, it must be because of his MS, not because of his speaking ability. I'm simply giving you one tiny example of a thousand examples you find in the Drush Well, our hero, the Marshik, or Shmuel Yehuda, um did the same thing. He, he he modeled the book. Sometimes you find this in Jewish history. Some Godot will model a safer like on, on another ones. He has 12 Drush's o- 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 over there, of the same variety, but it's more Italianite. And it's got more, uh, what shall I say, Geisha quotes? <laughs> and uh, things like that. It's called... Now, here's the funny part. It's called Drush's Maori Mint. If you ever buy it, uh, and believe it or not, I picked this up years ago in a bookstore. I couldn't believe it when I was in Israel. It's Manukad. I always like things with kudos. I said, how does anybody even hear of the Drushes of Maori mints? Who's even heard of this person or Shmuel Yudakatzalabugan? And who took the trouble to put this all out with the kudos? But they did. And uh, as you see... Um, in, in these brushes, he tries to bring out, as I said before, philosophical, as we, maybe I should use the word hashkafa points. But hashkafa, using uh, the best of modern science, as that was understood in the 16th century, together with Torah values, we're dealing with very from people over here, obviously. Uh, from a historical point of view, what's interesting is he has hespids for uh, Yosef Karo, who is a friend of his, and for the who uh, who is a cousin of his. I said where Yosef was a friend of his. It's true. The, if you know anything about the history of Jewish books and publishing, uh, so the 1500s is the big century. You want to see what I'm talking about? The big technology, well, let, me, let me rephrase this. You and I live in a day, in a period, where we can look back and see that the most dynamic form of economic and scientific uh, development has been the area of communications. This is the revolution of everybody. Uh, everything. Uh, who's making the big money today? Google and the Facebook and, you know, I don't know, all those types of things. And uh, what does that mean? Knows the internet. And uh, they're going to take it to the next level and take it to the next level. Because a lot of money being made because the constant improvement of communication, the ability to spread your ideas is like a big source of money. Always has been. Well, this started, my friends, 500 years ago with the printing press. Before that, Reading and books were very rare. And then, of course, it changed. So this affected the Torah world as well. And when the 1500s came around and they started to print Hebrew books, just for it. use your imagination for a second. You have a little imagination, right? Use your imagination for a second. What a gigantic difference it made once Hebrew books start to be mass-produced. And the main place was Italy. And the main place, Italy, Venice. I won't go into the reasons why, but that's what happened. Venice. And so here's somebody who's a big rabbi, Shmuel, you sitting on top of Venice, where the Hebrew publishing is taking place as the most powerful. So, and he's a big Talmud Chacham. I mean, a world-class Talmud Chacham. So don't be surprised that if you're a rabbi whose name is Yosef Karo and you happen to live in Turkish Palestine, as Israel's called at that time, and you want to get your stuff published... After all, he spent all these years putting together base Yosef. I think he spent 30 years, if, I'm not, uh, if I remember correctly, putting in base Yosef. And if, you have, if you're familiar with base Yosef, you're not surprised it took a long time. It's a gigantic enterprise. So he wanted to get it out there. So who do you, who do you go to? He said, well, I, I want to get a public. There's no printing press in the Turkish Empire at that time. Certainly no printing presses in Palestine, in Israel, and Egypt, because the Arabs are technologically behind. So what are you going to do? You're going to send it to Venice. Well, that's possible to do, but who do you know in Venice. Well, if you know a great Talmud Chacham over there, and he knows you, and believe me, Rabbi Yosef Cairo at his time was considered a big deal. He was known around the world. He was a gadol not only in Israel but around the world. And so, don't be surprised if he's good friends at Shmuel Katznelgurun, at Marshik, the Rabbi in Venice, you send the stuff over here, and I I got the money. I can put together the money, and we'll publish it. That's how the Beis Yosef was published, and later on, that's how the Shulchan was uh, published, and that's uh, other books from Yosef Karo, and he has a whole Hespid where Yosef Karo died. It's very interesting, and he describes their friendship, all the rest of it, and he says, you know, there was other books that he had, he sent me on a ship, but the ship was sunken by pirates, and so all that writing is gone. Who knows what the Machabra was, Have uh, other things in mind, I don't know. But uh, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? Uh, he has similar things about the Rama, who I say was a relative of his, and mostly he's trying to explain... <laughs> Uh, from a from point of view, uh, as I say, what we say today, uh, philosophical problems. Uh, you know, when he deals with Pesach, he's trying to connect it with the eternality eternality of the soul. For some reason, it was a big question in the 1500s, you know, what really happens when you die? Nobody knows, right? Even Shlomel says in Kohelis, maybe when you die, nothing happens. It's just like a dog. It's a Pesach like that, you know? But who knows the difference between a man and a dog? And so the front position is, oh, no, there's an eshamah and this and that and the other. And he's trying to bring proofs for him from the Pesach story. This is the style. It's not really a 21st century style. What can I tell you? And it doesn't go over. never had any luck like Azari Figo. Uh, it's, it doesn't have that quality to it. But on the other hand, it did in that day. And if you have a big gutter like him, and he doesn't publish his Shalash and Chubas, and he doesn't take the trouble to publish his Kedushim and all that, which I'm sure he had a ton, but he feels proud. He wants to publish his drushes. He obviously figured this is how I'm meeting a mass audience. This is what the public can understand. It'll have the most impact on keeping the public from the Talmud Chacham can do without my stuff. Um, you know, maybe um, others will publish them. But uh, I want to put out there in the printing press uh, the kind of material that we would say today would be makar of the olim and keep them on the straight and narrow because. Italian Jew, I'll say again, especially Venice, is always pulled away, away, away. And to be perfectly honest, in the late 1500s, especially the 1600s, the kids got pulled more and more out of Yiddishkeit. It was just—it's just what it is. The, the party life was just right there, and the party life was uh, very tempting. And how are you going to keep them down on the farm? And one of the big uh problems of this—I'll just keep you another minute or two. One of the big problems in this era. Was uh, want, uh, drinking wine, because uh, they're developed in Italy a tradition that uh, you don't have to wear a stamiyena. You know you can drink aisha wine. After all, it's not used for idol worship. And Christians, it can be argued, it can be argued, are not really idol worshippers, and therefore it's not like the pagans used to touch it long ago in the time of the Talmud. And consequently, maybe it's okay. Now, there's a strong Jewish tradition not that way, but in Italy it's very famous that um, uh, even big rabbis. Uh, said the stamian was okay, and totally aside from the merits of this, you know, I'm not going to get into halachic discussion. Totally aside from the merits of it, it had very bad social consequences because the Talmud says that you want to stay from wine, gizer mishum Beno sehem, which means you don't want boys and girls hanging around. Jewish boys and non-Jewish girls, Jewish girls and non-Jewish boys. You don't want that, okay? And uh, if you can't figure that one out, then turn turn this off right now. Now. Um, they did it, and so there was just this laxity. Uh, there was other part of Europe, by the way, same thing in the Central Europe in Moravia. There was just a tradition that you can use any wine. Uh, and later on, big rabbis tried to fight against it. I'll be perfectly honest; I don't remember what their position. Yehuda was on the wine. He may have been one of the Mechilim. I I can't recall off the top of my head. Uh, my memory is, is pulling me in both directions. But uh, he was very much part of that world. I'm just trying to give you a tiny example of the question they have at that time. If we're in America today, you say the problem is the internet. The problem is the movies. If you're in Italy in the 1500s, there's no movies, there's no internet, but the problem is drinking. You see, and I don't mean drinking in terms of the alcoholism like we have today. That's a cup problem. I'm just talking about like, Zera Mishun You see, the 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 socialization that takes place over there and results in. Um, people going off to there converting, running out, who knows, you know, it's a whole uh, host of problems. Uh, I'll mention one last point that's associated with Shmuel Yehuda Ketzalag and that is, I'll just touch on this. Maybe I mentioned before, maybe I did, One of the, if you study Jewish history, every once in a while, you come across famous halachic controversies, which uh, raged for a little while and involved big people, big rabbis, on different sides of the issues. And then later on, time went by and it kind of died out. I'm thinking of talking about one of those on this Shabbos for Shabbos Hagorah. Anyway, um, so, in Italy, the big thing was called the Mikvah of Rovigo. Rovigo is a a town not too far away from Venice. And one of the Talmidim of Shmuel Yodah was a rabbi. I think there was like 17, 18 families, believe it or not. So, this is the old days. A guy had a Mikvah in the house. But it wasn't so simple uh, the rules of the mikvah are complicated, but I think everybody knows you can't use Mayim Shuvan. You can't just take water you know, from a, a clay and pour it in. And so hopefully you have some kind of rainwater situation. There are other ways of doing it involving snow. You know, there's a whole science called mikvahs. And um, apparently it was very complex. It was very difficult to get the water into the mikvah in that this, uh, the, the, this guy uh, built in his house. And again, he was a big Talmud Chacham. His funny name, I think it was Aft- Aftalian... Consilio, I think that was his name, in Italy. You had people with names like Shmaya, uh all kind of unusual. Uh, Abaya, rubber. I, mean, I know it sounds funny, but the, the, you, there was a, an interesting phase in the history of Jewish names. Anyway, um, so it was a guy and his brother. The the, the guy himself was a big Talmud Chacham and a Talmud Rishmuyim of Ketanogeburgin, and he organized the mikvah in such a way that listen to this. When you you, you go to like a uh, I don't know a pond or whatever and uh, you have a bucket but the bucket has big holes so since it has big holes that satisfies the halachic situation it's not called a kli and so look what I'm doing I'm taking this bucket with big holes and it's a pain in the neck I'm throwing the bucket in the water pulling out the water and immediately schlepping it over to where the mikvah is or someplace near the mikvah which has holes in it itself there's a whole Rube Goldberg operation and it's obviously, oh, the water is leaking at us. I'm carrying it and, and, and pulling it. So it's very laborious. But the idea is that way it doesn't have a din of you, know, you can satisfy the legalities. That you're, not, you know, you're not pouring it in from a Klee into a Mikvah because that would be a problem. Uh, but he did it some other way. And uh, as I say, the guy who did this was a big Talmud of and a student of a, a Shmuel Yol Katsalagman, like we say today, a Talmud Cutler, you know that kind of thing. And, uh, and he supervised and it was fine. Then he moved away, I think the story is, and his brother took it over, and he gave exact instruction to his brother how to do it with all the pechefkas and all the uh, chumras and everything to keep it that way. But the brother wasn't so strict, and he used, uh, what shall I say, pails that didn't have those big holes in it, but a whole bunch of little small holes perforated. And when the first brother found out, he raised all kind of hell, and then he said the mikvah's no good and the women is the problem, and the other brother said it's okay. For some reason this took off, Oh my goodness, it became like a cause celebre. And for about 20 years, people were running back and forth. There are books on this. No, there's Sfarim. They're written around the year, late 1500s, early 1600s, that raged over here back and forth. Communities fought. It's like the Mdnebchitz fight over the kashas of a particular mikveh. Now, why didn't somebody just say like this? Let's rebuild a new mikvah and put the whole problem away. That's not what happened. And one of the main arguments, I think, of the side that was defending is, they were the Shemul Yehudah Ketanogamah said it was okay. I forget which way it was. If he said it, that's the end of the discussion. And the opposing side said, no, his shita has problems with it. And they said, I don't want to hear this problem. He was a Kaddish, a tar. He's a posegador, You shut up. And uh, therefore, his reputation was on the line when this idea raged. It's, I'll, I'll end with this because I've gone too long. But it speaks, interestingly, of the Jews in the Republic of Venice in the 15th-1600s after getting all out of shape and people getting argued over the kashras of a mikvah. Halavai people should be so Jewishly connected even today. Uh, That's all for now. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.